welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. I'm recording for you folks on a Sunday evening. My name is Sarah, and I am the host of the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. And for those of you who are just tuning in, we are the podcast that talks about all those weird, crazy, and wild medical cases in the past, present, and the future. Before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors or nurses or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please do not take what we say on the show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Let's jump right in. This week's episode, I found some really interesting articles. The first one that I'm going to talk about is an article by a woman named Victoria Bell, and it's called World's Oldest Parents Are in Intensive Care After Welcoming Twin Baby Girls. The world's oldest parents are in intensive care just one week after the new mother gave birth to twin girls after 57 years in a childless marriage. Indian couple... I cannot pronounce their names, unfortunately. (laughs) At least I can't pronounce the woman's name. She was 74, and her husband, Raja Rowe, 78, welcomed the two healthy babies on September 5th. The pair tried to conceive throughout their marriage, eventually successfully undergoing IVF treatment last year in a hospital. Due to the grace of the God and the doctors, I am the proud father of two baby girls, Rao announced, hours after his wife was hailed as the world's oldest mother. We are the happiest couple on earth today, he said. But just one day later, Rao collapsed from a heart attack and was taken into intensive care in his home area. The mother has also remained in intensive care since the birth, and the twins are said to be doing very well, but have not yet been named and are staying with the couple's relatives. The female in this couple became pregnant in January after getting the all clear to undergo IVF treatment. Since she had already been through menopause, doctors used donor eggs and fertilized them with her husband's sperm. Doctors were unsure of whether she could carry to term, but she defied the odds and delivered two healthy babies, each weighing four pounds, through a C-section. Doctors have declined to provide details of their current condition, but according to relatives, both the, the husband and wife are stable. It's unclear why the wife remains in intensive care, though. Health experts say there could be a lot of risks for an elderly woman giving birth. This is very odd indeed. I can't say that I think it's going to be an easy go of it for this older couple because they are essentially senior citizens and grandparents now. So by the time these babies are old enough to leave the house, they're going to be at the age where they're either going to be in nursing homes or they're going to be incapable of caring for themselves. So this is going to be interesting to see how it plays out through the years. In any case, very, very interesting. Next article. This one was on NBCNews.com, and it is called A Common Numbing Medication Turned a Woman's Blood Blue. The article was by Nicole Edison, and it came out September 2019. A 25-year-old woman in Rhode Island gave new meaning to the phrase feeling blue when she developed a rare and sometimes fatal condition called 
methoglobinemia that turned her blood a deep shade of navy blue. God forgive me if I mispronounced it. It's got like a hundred letters in it. The woman whose case was described Wednesday in the New England Journal of Medicine told doctors that she'd used a topical pain reliever for a toothache. So maybe sort of an Orogel type of a thing. The next morning, she woke up feeling sick and went to the emergency room. I'm weak and I'm blue, she told emergency room doctors, according to Dr. Otis Warren, an ER physician at Miriam Hospital in Rhode Island, who treated the woman and wrote the case report. The woman had indeed taken on a bluish tinge. She was what doctors call cyanotic, a medical term that refers to when the skin and nails take on a bluish color. This is a typical sign that the body is not getting enough oxygen. An initial reading showed that her blood oxygen level was 88% lower than normal, which is close to about 100%, although it was higher than what doctors had expected given her appearance. Her blood had also taken on a dark blue appearance. While blood drawn from a vein typically takes on a darker appearance because it isn't carrying oxygen, blood drawn from an artery should appear bright red. In the woman's case, blood from her veins and arteries were dark blue. Warren immediately recognized the problem... He had seen one case like this before during his residency when a patient developed the disease after being treated with an antibiotic. The skin color looked exactly the same, Warren told NBC News. You see it once and it stays in your mind. The diagnosis prompted Warren to take a more precise measurement of the woman's blood oxygen level, which showed that it was in fact lower at 67%. At this level, tissue damage can occur. This particular condition occurs when the iron in a person's blood changes form and as a result can no longer bind to oxygen and carry it through the blood. This means that even though a person has no difficulty breathing, the rest of the body can feel like it's suffocating. In this woman's case, she hadn't taken an antibiotic. Instead, she had used an over-the-counter numbing medication, which contained benzocaine to help with the pain for a tooth. She told Warren that she didn't use the whole bottle, but it was apparent to him that she'd used a whole lot of it. Methemoglobinemia is easily treatable using a medication that perhaps ironically is called methylene blue. The woman was given the drug intravenously and within minutes reported feeling better. Still, she was given a second dose and spent the night in the hospital for observation before being sent home the next morning with a referral to a dentist. The case spurred Warren to keep an eye for products containing benzocaine. Even in the drugstore, he said, he spotted it in a number of different formulations. People have no idea that something very specific and very dangerous can happen, he said. It is not a mild side effect. The strange reaction is also very unpredictable. While the woman in this case used a lot of benzocaine, researchers still don't know exactly why certain numbing medications have this effect. Benzocaine is not the only drug that can cause this condition. It can occur in low or high doses and can happen even if a person has used drugs previously with no reaction. 
While these reactions are rare, the Food and Drug Administration issued past warnings to hospitals noting that benzocaine can lead to this particular condition. The FDA also recommends that teething products contain, that contain benzocaine should not be given to children under the age of two. And in 2006, the Veterans Health Administration removed products containing benzocaine, which is used to numb patients' throats for procedures from their hospitals. Warren said that in his hospital, he's noticed the spray cans containing benzocaine have gotten much smaller. This may be to reduce the risk of giving too much, he said. This condition that the woman in this article suffered from isn't only caused by numbing agents. The condition can also be caused by certain antibiotics or contaminated well water. As well, it can also be a genetic condition. A family in Kentucky called the Blue Fugates of Troublesome Creek passed the condition down through generations for more than 150 years. That is crazy. (laughs) And then when you click on the link in the article, you get another article by Gregory Phillips called The Fugates of Troublesome Creek. And it's off of jamanetwork.com. The beautiful and bountiful hues that decorate the human body range wildly. Blue-colored skin is not regulated to the realm of fantasy as illustrated by the particular case of the Fugate family of eastern Kentucky. Around 1820, a French orphan named Martin Fugate immigrated to Kentucky to claim a land grant on the banks of Troublesome Creek. According to lore... He bore a blue-tinted complexion, and after marrying a fair-skinned woman, four of their children had this remarkable blue skin. Martin Fugate and Elizabeth Smith, who had married and settled near Hazard, Kentucky, around 1800, were both carriers of the recessive methamoglobimina gene, as was a nearby clan of whom the Fugate's descendants intermarried. As a result, many descendants of the Fugates were born with this gene. Descendants with the disease gene continued to live in the areas around Troublesome Creek and Ball Creek into the 20th century, eventually coming to the attention of the nurse Ruth Pendergrass and hematologist Madison Cowen III, who made a detailed study of their condition and ancestry. He treated the family with methylene blue, which eased their symptoms and reduced the blue coloring of their skin. He eventually published his research in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 1964. As travel became easier in the 20th century and families spread out over wider areas, the prevalence of the recessive gene in the local population reduced and with it the probability of inheriting the disease. Benjamin Stacy, born in 1975, is the last known descendant of the Fugates to have been born exhibiting the characteristic blue color of the disease, and he lost his blue skin tone as he grew older. It has been speculated that some other American sufferers of inherited this inherited disease may also have had Fugate ancestors, but searchers for direct links have so far proved inconclusive. Very, very interesting, these blue sufferers popping up in the news. Many of you may heard in local news about a number of people who have received face transplants. And this has been a life-saving and critical procedure for people who have been disfigured enormously by accident, by attack from a domestic partner, 
or by the attempts to commit suicide or overdose on drugs. So one recent case is something that popped up in the news lately. This article is called Face Transplant Recipient's Donor Face is Now Failing. And this article came out in the Associated Press September 2019. No author is listed on the article. A woman who was severely burned in a domestic violence attack in Vermont is hoping for a second face transplant after doctors recently discovered tissue damage that likely will lead to the loss of her donor face. Carmen Blandon Tarleton, 51, was burned over 80% of her body when her estranged husband beat her with a baseball bat and doused her body with lye in 2007. Six years ago, she received a face transplant at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where she's been being evaluated currently for a second possible transplant. Tarleton, who now lives in Manchester, New Hampshire, told the Boston Globe she has no regrets about the transplant because it dramatically improved her life. She has learned to play the piano and the banjo. She has written a memoir and has spoken to many groups about her life. She also lost 20 pounds and began walking five miles a week. I had such a low quality of life prior to my face transplant. Do I wish it had lasted 10 or 20 years? Of course, she says. More than 40 patients worldwide have received face transplants, including 15 in the United States. None of the American patients have lost their donor faces, but last year a French man whose immune system rejected his donor face eight years after his initial transplant underwent a second transplant. Tarleton's doctors noted that the most transplanted organs have limited lifespans. But her situation is a reminder that despite success in the field, face transplantation is experimental. And still is a very young science with many unanswered questions about benefits versus long-term risks. There are so many unknowns and so many new things that we are discovering, the doctors say, that it's really not realistic to hope faces are going to last the patient's entire lifetime. Dr. Brian Gastman, a transplant surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, which did the the first U.S. face transplant 11 years ago, said more patients are starting to experience chronic rejection. We all believe every patient will likely need a retransplant at some point, he says. Since her transplant in February 2013, Tarleton has had repeated rejection episodes when her new face became swollen and red. These episodes were successfully treated, but last month physicians discovered that some blood vessels to her face had narrowed and closed, causing facial tissue to die. If the damage progresses slowly, she could go on the wait list for another donor face. Under the worst case scenario, the tissue would die quickly and the doctors would have to remove it and reconstruct her original face, which could be pretty dramatic and painful. We are all in uncharted waters. I would rather not have to go through a catastrophic failure, she says. It will take at least a month to evaluate Tarleton and reach a decision about a second transplant, doctors are saying. Aside from the setback with her face, a system or a synthetic cornea transplant to her left eye recently failed as well, leaving her almost blind. These are not common things to go wrong, but when things do go wrong, you have to deal with it, she said. I will get back to where I was. How? I don't know, but I will get through this, she says. And she is a very, very courageous woman 
God knows she didn't ask for the conditions that are impacting her now, but we just, we, our thoughts and prayers go out to her and we hope that she finds an adequate resolution to help her live as normal a life as possible so that she can continue to grow and perhaps help others in similar situations. The next article that we have is somewhat related to that first article. This one came out on NewYorkPost.com. It is an article by Yaren Steinbuck, and it is called World's First Human Head Transplant, a Success, Professor Says. Very, very interesting. The world's first human head transplant has been carried out on a corpse in China, according to controversial Italian doctor who said Friday that he and his team are now ready to perform the surgery on a living person. Dr. Sergio... Canavero, chief of the Turin Advanced Neuromodulation Group, said the operation was carried out by a team led by Dr. Xiaopeng Ren, who last year successfully grafted a head onto a monkey's body. The first human transplant on human cadavers has been done. A full head swap between brain-dead organ donors is the next stage, Canavero said at a press conference in Vienna. And that is the final step for the formal head transplant for a medical condition which is imminent, said Canavero, who gained a mix of fame and notoriety in 2015 for his Frankenstein-like plans to achieve his feat within two years. Canavero said the successful transplant by the surgeons at Harbin Medical University shows that his technique for reconnecting the spine, nerves, and blood vessels to allow two bodies to live together will work. Although Russian computer scientist Valery Spiridonov, who suffers from a muscle-wasting disease, volunteered to become the first head transplant patient, the doctor has said the first recipient will likely be Chinese because the chance of a Chinese donor body will be much higher. And obviously they want to connect the head and the body so that there's less chance of rejection. Try to make those genetically as similar as possible. Canavero, who was claimed to have successfully carried out the surgery on rats and a monkey, said scientific papers detailing the procedure on the corpse, as well as more details of the first live human transplant, will be released in the next few days. He said a live operation would take place in China because his efforts to get backing for the project were dismissed by the medical communities in the U.S. and Europe, according to USA Today. The Americans do not understand, he says, as he discussed the surgery. Canavero plans to sever the spinal cords of the donor and recipient with a diamond blade. To protect the recipient's brain during the transfer, it will be cooled to a state of deep hypothermia, he said. On Friday, he also said that his team has rehearsed his techniques with human cadavers in China, but there are otherwise no known human trials, USA Today reported. Most medical experts say the procedure is fraught with danger and profound biomedical ethical questions. Dr. James... Giordano, a professor at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, told USA Today that there was not enough rigorous study conducted ahead of such a procedure. He also thinks patients might be better served if Canavero focused his efforts on spinal reconstruction and not transplants. But he did give Canavero some credit for his pioneering work. He's run the ethical flag up the poles and said, look, I'm not an ethicist. 
I'm a neurologist, and this may be an avant-garde technique. I recognize there is a high probability for failure, but this is the only way we can push the envelope and probe the cutting edge to determine what works, what doesn't, and why, Giordano said. Alyssa Paskalev, a biomedical ethicist at Howard University in Washington, told the paper that there are major unanswered questions about the identity and the rights of the recipient. It's not just about head adjusting to a new body. We might be dealing with a whole new person, she says. And this is quite a frightening thing, I think, because you just there's so many questions so many legal, ethical, and moral questions when you start to play God like this. In a related article that came out in this same website on the nypost.com, this one came out by Yaren Steinbuck again. This one came out in December 2018, and it says, Disabled Man Changes Mind About Head Transplant. And this is related to the article that I just read. He wanted a new head, but had a change of heart after his glamorous new wife gave birth to a miracle son, according to reports. Valery Spiridonov, who suffers from a muscle-wasting disease, we remember we talked about him in the first article that we read, had volunteered to undergo the world's first head transplant at the hands of Italian surgeon Dr. Sergio Canavero, who was dubbed Dr. Frankenstein. But the 33-year-old Russian who was studying the computer analysis of emotions at the University of Florida recently revealed that with him are his bride, Anastasia, and their recently born son. The boy whose name has not been revealed was born six weeks ago and is healthy, which Valeri considers a miracle since there are rare genetic... A miracle since the rare genetic... Wernig Hoffman disease his dad suffers from can be inherited. His wife Anastasia holds a master's degree in chemical technology and underwent many tests during her pregnancy. She is not seen in pictures with Spiridonov, but she explained online her love of men in wheelchairs. Very strange. Such people are much deeper feeling, faithful, kind-hearted, and also they are usually very smart. Isn't that the main thing she wrote? Her husband said they tied the knot a little over one year ago in Moscow. We lived in the same city and often met in professional matters and soon realized that we felt really good together. He said, We lived in the same city and often met in professional... We lived in the same city and often met on professional matters and soon realized that we felt really good together, he said. In 2015, Spiridonov said he realized the risks of having his head severed and attached to a new healthy body, but that he was prepared to sacrifice his life for science. He did have some requirements, though. I wouldn't want to have my head transplanted onto the body of a woman, he said. When I wake up, I still want to be a man. Canavero, who has claimed to have successfully carried out such a surgery on rats and a monkey, is now working in China where he has received funding for his research, a news outlet reported. Spiridonov, who has challenged the surgeon to come clean on his efforts in China amid suspicions that something went awry during tests on two bodies. I do not regret it that Canavero did not reach the final goal or did reach it and failed, he told a Russian newspaper. 
This was just a normal working process. The only thing we lack from him is more publicity, he said. Everybody would have benefited from information about what went wrong in China and what and why. He added that he never had a vain motive in seeking the transplant. I felt a weight lifted off my chest, he said. I gave two years of my life to this project. I would be glad to see it happening with someone else. So clearly, this man, this gentleman, was interested in having the head transplant because he has a wasting sort of disease, and he was hoping that he could get a new body with his brain function still being able to exist and that the new body would allow him to be able to walk around and not be stuck in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. However, seeing what he has seen so far from the doctors that are conducting the research, particularly Dr. Canavero, he is seeing that it is alarmingly scary what's going on and that there's not a lot of transparency with respect to the medical team that are actually conducting the research behind this. There is a lot that's unknown on this and because he's conducting it in areas where research is not necessarily expected to be published, there could be some hidden side effects and hidden problems that are not necessarily being exposed to the public. So, Whew, I guess he is smart and using caution and pulling himself from this project. But very, very interesting. As the years and this continue to play out in scientific circles, I would, whew, well, I'm curious to see what will end up happening and, and how legal communities will begin to regulate this industry in order to control the possibility that some really scary stuff could happen. But this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to shoot us an email. Uh, we do have an Instagram account as well, and that is podcast.addict on Instagram. We love to interact with people there. Follow us, and we will follow you back. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye!